Chapter 17 of The Story of the World, A Simple History for Boys and Girls. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Story of the World, A Simple History for Boys and Girls, by Elizabeth O'Neill. Chapter 17. The New Nations We have now reached the story of that time in history which is known as the Middle Ages. We give it that name because, in many ways, it stands halfway between our times and the Greek and Roman times of which we have been speaking. The first few hundred years of the Middle Ages are often called the Dark Ages, because there was so much ignorance and bloodshed, and because, though the church did much to civilize the barbarians, yet the art and civilization of the Roman Empire disappeared, and though the barbarians were always learning from what remained, it was a long time before the new and wonderful civilization of the Middle Ages appeared. The history of the early part of the Middle Ages in the west of Europe is the story of how the barbarian tribes settled down on the lands of the Roman Empire, how they fought between themselves, and how some won and some disappeared, how new nations appeared when the conquering barbarians married and mixed with the peoples they conquered, how all were Christian how after a time of much ignorance and disorder and bloodshed, a new civilization grew up, which, if rougher in some ways than the Roman and Greek civilizations, yet was better than them, because it was Christian. The Eastern Empire, too, has a wonderful history of its own in the early Middle Ages, and we must now turn to the story. Odecker, the barbarian soldier who had made Romulus Augustulus give up his name of emperor, and now called himself king of the nations in Italy, did not enjoy his position long. The famous Theodoric, king of the Ostrogoths, or Eastern Goths, another group of that people who had been allowed to settle in the Roman provinces on the Danube, suddenly made up his mind to take Italy for his own. He was a fine soldier, and his family, known as the Amali, had ruled the Ostrogoths for many years. The Ostrogoths had learned more from Rome than any other of the barbarians, and Theodoric had made up his mind that if he won Italy, he would rule it in a wise and civilized way. In the year 489 AD, he led a great army into Italy and made Odecker give up his kingdom. Soon after, Odecker was murdered at a feast. Probably Theodoric had him killed, thinking it would be safer to have him out of the way. Even the best men of the time, at any rate soldiers like Theodoric, thought much less about killing people than we do now. But when he had won Italy, Theodoric did his best to rule it well. 
He tried to join the Goths and the Italians together to form a nation. He ruled Italy for thirty years, having Goths for his soldiers and officers, but choosing the wisest and cleverest of the conquered Italians to help him rule the country. He lived chiefly at Ravenna, for Rome was beginning to belong more and more to the Pope, who was growing more powerful as time went on. Theodoric built beautiful churches and a palace at Ravenna. He married members of his family into the families of the other barbarian kings, for he hoped to hand on his kingdom to his family, and knew that it would be stronger if it had the help of other royal families. But Theodoric was an Arian, and like all the other barbarians who had become Arians, the Ostrogoths found that the conquered peoples would not mix with them. If Theodoric had been a Christian proper, he might have made a kingdom of Italy which would have lasted. But this was not to be. At the end of his reign, Theodoric had his friend Boethius, one of the Italians whom he had had to help him to rule his kingdom, cruelly put to death because he thought he was plotting to help the eastern emperor to get Italy back again. Boethius was a very good and holy man, and had not done this thing. While he was in prison, he quietly gave his time to writing a book called The Consolations of Philosophy. When he was dead, Theodoric was sorry for what he had done, and it is said that it was partly through this that he himself fell ill and died soon after. Then the eastern emperor did try to win back Italy. The Great Emperor Justinian The new emperor, Justinian, was a very clever and great man. It is thought that he belonged to a Slavonic family, but took a Roman name, when he was adopted by his uncle, the emperor Justin. Justinian was the greatest of all the Roman emperors in the East. He was ambitious, and was one of those strong men who are always working and yet are always healthy. He could do with very little sleep, and spent most of the night reading or writing. He often went for days without food, and yet always looked bright and well, and had a red color in his face. Justinian had to fight hard against the Persians who had risen up again as a great power, and were threatening all the Roman provinces in Asia Minor. He kept them back to the Euphrates, but wasted years in fighting them. It would have been better if Justinian had given all his strength to the struggle with the Persians, but he could not bear to think that the empire had lost Italy. After the death of Theodoric, the Ostrogoth, Justinian sent a great general called Belisarius to conquer the Goths. The Gothic kings after Theodoric were not such great men, and in the end Justinian's generals won. But Italy did not remain long under the eastern emperor, for when Justinian and Belisarius died, both in the same year, new barbarian peoples swarmed into Italy, 
The officer of the Eastern Empire remained at Ravenna and was called the Exarch, but he never had any real power in Italy and only helped to prevent that country becoming a nation like France and Spain and the other lands of the Western Roman Empire. No sooner was Justinian dead than the Longobards, another Teutonic people who had been allowed to settle near the Danube, rushed down upon the north of Italy. They set up their capital at Pavia, and under the name of Lombards, which was the Italian way of saying it, they ruled North Italy for the next two hundred years. But all this time there were two other capitals in Italy, Rome under the Pope and Ravenna under the Exarch, who still pretended that he was ruling all Italy for the Eastern Emperor. Justinian had attacked the Vandal Kingdom in North Africa, and he did win this back for the Eastern Empire, until it was taken by a new and terrible enemy whom we shall have to speak about later on. But the name of Justinian is famous for another work which he did, the results of which have lasted down to our times. The barbarian peoples had laws of their own, but the Roman laws were much better, and most of the new nations, when they settled down, began to use these laws as well as their own. Justinian had the Roman laws written down and clearly arranged. It was a great work, and we do not know how much of it Justinian himself did, but in any case it was his idea. All the nations of Western Europe except England lived by these laws all through the Middle Ages, and even England began to use some of them later on. Meanwhile, the Visigoths in Gaul had been driven farther and farther south by that other Teutonic people which had at first settled only in the north of France. These were the Franks. When they first took part of Gaul for their own, they were still pagans. They were much fiercer and less civilized than the Goths, whom they hated. About the same time that the Ostrogoths were ruled by their great king Theodoric, the Franks too had a great king called Clovis. He was the first great king of the Franks, and the only one for many years. He led his fierce soldiers against the Visigoths and drove them before him out of Gaul into Spain, and then the whole of Gaul belonged to the Franks and in time took the name France from them. The wife of Clovis was a Christian, and Clovis had made a promise to God that if he won a certain battle, he would become a Christian too. He did so, and all his people did the same. The Franks were Christians proper, and so had a much better chance of making friends with the conquered people than the Visigoths had had. In a very short time they settled down, and took the language and laws as well as the religion of the conquered people. We must remember that the Latin language remained in all the western provinces of the empire except England. 
Though the conquerors were Teutonic, they gave up their own language and spoke that of the people round them. Of course, some changes were made in the language, but Italian, Spanish, and French are only new forms of the beautiful Latin language which the Teutonic conquerors learned from the people they conquered. The Visigoths were driven into Spain until they, in their turn, were conquered by that same enemy which overran North Africa and which for a time threatened all Western Europe. But before that time, the Visigoths in Spain had been converted from Arianism to Christianity proper and, like the Franks, married and mixed with the people they had conquered so that the Spanish nation today, like the French, is descended from both peoples. In this, they are very different from the English people, for as far as we can tell, the Angles and Saxons and Jutes drove most of the Britons out of England into Wales, except the few whom they kept as slaves, so that the English today are descended from these purely Teutonic peoples. While the nations were settling down, great changes were, of course, taking place. There was still much fighting and bloodshed. The church and the bishops did what they could to civilize the people, but they were still very rough. Very few children went to school, and there was very little learning. The old Roman buildings fell into ruins, though their roads were still used everywhere. The great theater, called the Colosseum at Rome, was used as a sort of quarry all through the Middle Ages, as the people of Rome carried off the stones to build their houses and churches. The Early Monks the new barbarian peoples knew nothing about art or building, and for the first few hundred years their churches were quite small and plain. During all this time, monasteries were being set up all over Western Europe, and in these the best men of the time lived, and sometimes set up schools for boys. The monasteries were often set up in wild and lonely regions, but the monks worked hard and cultivated the land. Their houses became places of peace and prosperity and served as an example to the people in those rough times. Many of these monasteries used the rule of St. Benedict. St. Benedict was an Italian monk who wrote down the way of life which he had found good for several monasteries which he had set up in Italy. It was a very wonderful rule, and for many hundreds of years after, the monasteries, which spread all over the west of Europe, used it. St. Benedict wanted his monasteries to be like families, where all should work for the good of the others, and all obey the abbot, the head monk, who was to be a sort of father to the others. The name abbot means father. The monks were called Benedictines, or as they wore a plain black habit or frock, they were later called the black monks of St. Benedict. It was one of these monks, St. Augustine, 
who came first to convert the English to Christianity, and he was sent by another Benedictine monk who had become Pope. This was St. Gregory the Great. Gregory was a boy belonging to a rich and noble family at Rome. He was very clever and handsome, and he was given a high position in the government of the city. But he gave it up to become a monk at the great monastery of St. Andrew at Rome, and later, when the Pope died, all the people begged that Gregory should be made Pope in his place. It was before he was Pope that one day, as he walked through the marketplace at Rome, he saw some beautiful children standing there with blue eyes and fair hair, very different from the Italian children round about. They were little slave children who had been taken prisoners in the wars in England and were now being sold. For in those days, prisoners were nearly always sold as slaves. Gregory asked who these children were. He was told that they were angles. But he said they looked like angels, and as he knew that the English were still pagans, he made up his mind to do all that he could to teach them the Christian religion. When he was pope, he sent the monk, Augustine, with some others to teach the English the true religion. St. Augustine landed in Kent because Ethelbert, the king of Kent, had married a Frankish princess who was already a Christian. Ethelbert and all his people became Christians, and Augustine built a church at Canterbury. But there were many other kingdoms in England. For Britain was not conquered by one people like France or Spain, but by several tribes, and it was many years before all the little kingdoms were joined together to make one nation. One of the kingdoms, Mercia, in the middle of England, had a savage king called Penda, who hated the Christians and fought against them for many years. In the end, he was killed but all the preaching and teaching had to be done over again. This time, other monks, who were not Benedictines but came from Ireland, did the work. Ireland had never been part of the Roman Empire. Its people were Celts, but they had been made Christians by the great St. Patrick, another Celt, who left his home in Britain to convert the Irish. Britain had, of course, become Christian under the Romans. About the time that St. Benedict was setting up his monasteries in Italy, other monasteries were growing up all over Ireland, and a great Irish monk, St. Columba, set out from his own country to teach Christianity to the people in Scotland. He built a great monastery on the island of Iona, and it was said from there that St. Aidan and other monks came into the north of England to help to make the people Christians. The missionaries from Iona did not altogether agree with the missionaries from Rome. The Irish church had been cut off from the other churches of the West through being so far away, and some differences had grown up. 
They kept Easter at a different time, for one thing. So Oswy, king of Northumbria, called a synod or meeting of bishops and priests at Whitby in 664, and there it was decided that the Roman way of doing things should be taken, and from this time onward the English church was closely connected with the popes. Later another great man was sent from Rome to put order into the English church. This was Theodore of Tarsus, who became the first archbishop of Canterbury. He set up bishops in different parts of England, all under the archbishop of Canterbury, and when the English people were joined in this way by the church, it became easier for them to join together as one nation. England, too, was soon covered over by monasteries, and her first historian, Bede, and her first poet, Cadmon, were both monks. In the 8th century, that is, between the years 700 and 800 A.D., English monks and nuns were going out in their turn to convert the heathen peoples of Germany beyond the Rhine. The greatest of these English missionaries was St. Boniface, who spent the greater part of his life in the work. But we must now turn to tell the story of a new danger which was threatening Christianity and the civilization it was helping to make. End of chapter 17 Read by Carrie Adams, your book voice, at Mesa, Arizona, on the 15th of February, 2022.